One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you, invited you both, will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts, exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Our second reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 24. And we'll read the first 15 verses. Joshua 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders the heads, the judges, 
and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your father. That you, sorry. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fa whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good thanks, Jared. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, for this time that we can have together to uh, spend around your word. And Lord, I pray that you'll open our, our hearts to hear your word this morning. Um, and I pray that we will respond to, to your word. Lord, I pray that you'll teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Every time I preach, I seem to give you a Bible marathon. So um, guess what? You're in for another one today. But um, if you're taking notes, I don't expect you to um, sort of look up every, every single reference. If you just write it down and you can look at it later. Um, interesting passage this morning um, when I first read it I could not get a handle on what what the passage was trying to say um, 
but after talking with uh, Lyndon last week, um, all of a sudden it just just clicked in with me, and um, so I hope it clips clicks in with you too. So when I first started reading this passage, I thought verse one in Luke twenty four, Luke fourteen, was um, an odd way to start a chapter. Here we have Jesus dining at a at a prominent Pharisee's home, obviously with many guests, and they were watching him carefully. Weren't they always watching him carefully? They're always looking for ways to trap him and use his evidence against him. So they're always watching him carefully. But it's interesting that this particular Pharisee seemed to have a part to play in a speech that he gave, or maybe you might want to call it a rant, in Luke 13, verse 10. If you want to look this one up, um, it's quite interesting. On a Sabbath... Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or your donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? Now, we all know that the Pharisees are keepers of the law. So they would have known what was written in Exodus 20, 9 and 10, which says, the six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. And even the meals for the Sabbath were prepared the previous day. But they'd all untie their animals and they'd take them for a walk or go to water and feed them. That's not work. But they were doing stuff. Yet they considered healing as work. So seeing seeing Jesus heal this lady was an affront to them. So if we go back to Luke 14, we read on in in this passage where there was a man who had abnormal swelling of his body. Um, In Jared's version, it said dropsy. Um, This this could be um, the equivalent of what's known now today as edema, uh, which is an excessive accumulation of fluid in the tissues and cavities of the body that indicates an illness in which a person remains thirsty no matter how much they drink. Now, my suspicious mind when I read this passage, I thought to myself, the Pharisees put this fella as a plant. But he was there anyway, so it doesn't really matter what, what, I, what my suspicious mind was thinking. Jesus said to the Pharisees 
is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they didn't answer. Now, it's interesting that the Pharisees seem to keep the laws to suit themselves. They use them for their own means rather than keeping the whole law. And if you look at Mark 2, 23, we read, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, look, what, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. So in this passage, Jesus was referring to uh, the story in 1 Samuel 21, where David um, was on a mission from the king. And it was apparently a secret mission. But David went to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. Don't you love these names? Ahimelech trembled when he met, met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David answered, Ahimelech the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what have you to hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered, David, I don't have any ordinary bread to hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have, been kept, have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? Okay, so the priest gave him the consecrated bread and since there was no bread in the, there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. So Jesus uses this illustration, to this incident, to illustrate the principle that a specific law could be broken in order to preserve a more fundamental principle of law. He teaches that it is lawful to do good and to save life. Such compassionate acts are within the true spirit of the law, even on the Sabbath. But by questioning them before the miracle, Jesus made it difficult for them to protest afterwards. So remember, Jesus is eating at a Pharisee's house. It's the Sabbath. The Pharisees believe he can't heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus asked them, is it wrong to heal on the Sabbath? So that's getting it into context. But by questioning them before the miracle, Jesus made it difficult for them to protest afterwards. So Jesus healed the man and sent him on his way. And sure enough, there was no word from the Pharisees. But they were sort of a bit indignant in the back of the room. But as always, Jesus used this as a teaching moment and asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Now, the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 5.14 says, 
but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. So the law is specific. Animals and humans are not to work on the Sabbath. Pretty clear. But Jesus is basically saying, come on, guys. If one of your kids or one of your animals falls into a well on the Sabbath, are you going to leave them there till the following day? Of course not. There'll be hands on deck, all hands on deck. To get them out. So Jesus' action was unlawful by the rabbinic law interpretation, but not according to the Mosaic law itself. And then sort of after he was talking to, to the Pharisees about this, he noticed the people at the table were actually jostling for position. Now in the Greco Roman world, banquets or dinner parties were not just a time of celebration like we know them. They were rituals related to social status. One key purpose for these events was to increase one's honour and status in the community. A person's place at the table would be used to indicate one's status with, with positions near the host as the most elite. Different food and wine would even be served to different people depending on their social status. First, the first century Roman sources even described guests being placed in different dining rooms. It's almost like our family Christmas. The adults in one room, the kids in another. So it was like a, it was like a grading of status. And this was clearly the order of the day and reflected the values of this honour slash shame culture. It is this kind of behaviour that lies behind Jesus' teaching in today's passage. He tells his hearers not to take a high place at the table so they can avoid the humiliation of being asked to move down the table to a lower one. Jesus tells his hearers to invite the poor and the outcasts to the parties because they can't reciprocate. And this goes against the traditions of the time. Now, I can imagine the Pharisees saying, do you mean we have to invite those people? How rude. No, thanks. But by inviting these people, it's like our Father in heaven who loves all people and cares for the most vulnerable members of society, the poor, the widows, and the fatherless. We see Jesus living out this lack of concern for maintaining social status because he eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. Then in verse 15, Luke 14, we read, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. I thought, wow, this fellow's got it. He understands what Jesus is talking about. Then I thought, well, maybe he's actually thinking, well, if I get into the feast of the kingdom of God, I'll have pretty high, high status. So... I thought, well, maybe he hasn't really got it. You know, last week, um, David mentioned during communion that the communion is a foretaste or a sample 
of the feast of heaven. And Sam also referred to how many will enter the kingdom or eternity. Not everybody will enter the kingdom. The Jews were and are God's chosen people. So they believe they'll automatically be entitled to enter. I'm a Jew, so I deserve to enter the feast. I'm related to Abraham, so I have my rights. But Jesus said that not everyone would enter the kingdom. The initial invitation, like our, um, like our save the date thing that people send out, must have been accepted. But when the final invitation came, by Jewish custom, the announcement that came uh, when the feast was actually ready, other interests took priority. The excuses are really weak. Very similar to someone today buying property or a vehicle sight unseen. Have you heard of people doing that? A wedding date could have been chosen so as not to conflict with this prior commitment. And in each case, the banquet giver is being intentionally snubbed. Very similar to the thinking of the young people today. Yeah, sure, I'll come. But in the back of their minds are saying, but if something better comes, I'll take that first. Jesus goes on to say that the owner of the house sent his servants to go out again and invite others from the town to come. The homeless, the poor, the orphans, the widows, the socially status poor, anyone who did not have a standing in the community. But there was still room. So the master sent them further afield. Basically, Jesus was saying, my people will not listen to my words, so I will spread this good news to the Gentiles. And when they hear the invitation, they will respond. Those who were given the initial invitation and have chosen another path will miss out. Without spelling it out, Jesus warned the Jewish religious leaders that those who refuse the invitation to his messianic banquet would not get one taste of it, but others would. My question to you is this. How will you respond to Jesus' invitation? Will you decide to follow Jesus or do you have some excuse that you think is valid for rejecting Jesus' invitation? Excuses like, there's no way that God would love me. I'm useless. I've done so much in my life that God would never forgive me. Or I'm so bad, if I walked into a church, the building would collapse. I enjoy what I do already. I don't want to change what I do. The way I see it, it's all a bunch of rules. It's all don't do this and don't do that. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want any part of it. There's no time. It's, it's too late or I'm too old. My parents baptised me when I was a baby. I don't need to do anything. Have you heard of those excuses before? Maybe you even made them yourself. David and I are going through a book, and I think Jared um, and David are going through the book as well, um, on every second Wednesday by J.C. Ryle called Thoughts for Young Men. And he's, he's, he's basically talking to young men about principles of life. And one of the comments that he made in this book struck me um, as, a, as a contrast you know, to us making excuses 
and he says, do you feel doubts and fears? Now, excuse the language because the language is old. Well, in my book, it's old anyway. Do you feel doubts and fears? Cast them aside. Come unto me. He says, and him that cometh, I will in no wise cast out. He knows well the heart of a young man. He knows your trials and your temptations, your difficulties and your foes. In the days of his flesh, he was like yourselves, a young man at Nazareth. He knows by experience a young man's mind. He can be touched with feelings of your infirmities, for he suffered himself being tempted. Surely you will be without excuse if you turn away from such a saviour and friend as this. Now, you might have excuses not to follow Jesus, but R.C. Ryle is saying that there is no excuse not to follow Jesus. Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He's standing at the door of our lives and knocking. He's calling your name. He's inviting you to enter the feast of the kingdom. He's inviting you to have a relationship with him. He's inviting you into his family. How will you respond? Will you say yes to Jesus' invitation? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Acts 10.43. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 13.39. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification that you are not able to attain under the law of Moses. Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. Romans 10.4. Christ is the culmination of the law so that, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. It's never too late unless you're dead. But actually, if you were dead, you wouldn't be hearing the message. So it's not too late because you're hearing the message. It wasn't too late for the thief who was hanging beside Jesus on the cross. It's not too late for you. Joshua proclaimed to his people in Joshua 24 that Jared read this morning. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me, I choose to serve the Lord. I choose to follow Jesus. I choose to open the door. This is a decision that only you can make. 
This is a personal relationship that cannot be transferred from your parents or grandparents or your siblings or your mates. And there's one saying I've heard says, just because you live in a garage doesn't make you a car. You need to choose for yourself. What will you decide? Will you decide to serve the Lord or will you, will you stay with what you have? Jesus can change your life as he did for Paul, for the disciples and for so many people who have gone before. Just a word of warning, it won't be a bed of roses. We read in 1 Peter 1.3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness, genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What will you decide? John 20, 30 says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by, by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus has given his invitation to you to eat with him in the feast of heaven. What will you do? with this invitation let's pray Lord thank you Lord for the invitation you have given to each one of us and I pray that that each one here who heard this message today will respond to your invitation that they will open up the door that they will hear your voice calling their name and that you, you will make them a part of their family in Jesus' name. Amen.